0: You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Presbyterian, a CREC church in Cochrane, Alberta. We invite you to visit our website at covenantpresbyterian.ca or contact us via email at covenantcochrane at gmail.com. We pray that you are blessed by the message. John 10, starting in verse 25 through 30. John chapter 10, verses 25 through 30. And it reads, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand I and the father are one The word of the Lord be to God. You may be seated Seems like every time we have a lot of visitors uh, I end up preaching something that's going to uh, either kick you in the face or or it's just going to be uh, extremely weighty so Thank you to all those who came, Uh, good timing, and uh, if you have any questions uh, about the sermon afterwards, I direct you to Kevin. (laughs) The uh, title of the sermon today is, For Whom Did Christ Die? For Whom Did Christ Die? And I want to start off today by giving a bit of a history lesson in order to give you a better understanding or a better thrust of the sermon, it puts it into a little bit more context. I also like the idea of taking time to go over some of the history uh, of the church, largely because the church today lacks great understanding of our history. Too many of us today think that church history started with Billy Graham in the 1950s. Uh, The church has been around a long time, and sometimes we forget that. We are often led astray by fine-sounding arguments because we don't understand that most, dare I say all, of the theological controversies today are not new. None of them are new. Uh, They've been hashed out by church councils in the history, uh, over church history, for the last 2,000 years. As it is written in the book of Ecclesiastes, there indeed is nothing new under the sun. In or around the year 397, St. Augustine, or Augustine, if you wish, Bishop of Hippo, a city in North Africa, wrote a very powerful book called Confessions. In this book, which is still widely read today, uh, there was a line that irked a British-born monk who was teaching in Rome. His name was Pelagius. What was the line, you may ask? Well, it was part of a prayer, and it went something like this. In it, the part that irked uh, Pelagius was uh, the part where Uh, St. Augustine wrote to God, Give what you command, and command what you will. Give what you command, and command what you will. Implied in the prayer is that mankind does not have the ability to carry out what God commands unless, unless he has first been given the ability to do so. We understand this Augustinian doctrine today as total depravity, total depravity. Pelagius didn't like the implication, so in the year 405, Pelagius wrote a response. In that response, he argued that sin did not have an effect on our natures, that sin did not have an effect on our natures, that we still held on to our ability to choose good or evil. Since all mankind still had that ability to choose, mankind was able to obtain God's grace through good actions. You obtain God's grace by doing good works. By obtaining this grace, they were then able to obtain salvation and holy living. Pelagius' is grace through good choices. That was, that was the gist of his argument. Pelagius' position is uh, one that we might call free will. Man had fallen from grace, but could, by use of their free will, obtain God's grace through good choices. In the year 431, at the first council of Ephesus, the council deemed Pelagius' teachings not just as incorrect, but they deemed Pelagius' teachings as heretical, meaning outside the faith. If you believe Pelagius' teachings, you were not a Christian. You fell outside of what we would call orthodoxy. And in fact, at that council, they backed the biblical teachings of St. Augustine. So let's fast forward about a thousand years. Not to say that there hasn't been more squabbles in that thousand years, but in the year 1524... A Dutch biblical scholar named Erasmus had been reading some of Martin Luther's written books. In those works, Luther had written about human free will, or the lack thereof of human free will. Erasmus took exception to this position, and he wrote a book called The Freedom of the Will. In response, in 1525, just one year later, Luther wrote The Bondage of the Will, in which he tackles Erasmus' argumentation or his assertions. One of the most interesting things about this book is in the conclusion, where Luther praises Erasmus for his understanding of the importance of the issue. He says to Erasmus, You and you alone saw what was the grand hinge upon which the whole turned, and therefore you attacked at the vital part at once. Why is the topic of free will versus God's sovereignty important? Luther explains, but if I know not the distinction between our working and the power of God, I know not God himself. And if I know not God, I cannot worship him. I cannot praise him. I cannot give him thanks nor serve him. For I shall not know how much I ought to ascribe unto myself and how much unto God. This is no minor doctrine. This is no minor doctrine. In 1542, Dutch Catholic theologian Albert, I don't know how to say this, Pigius, P-I-G-H-U-I-S, is Dutch. So, if any Dutch people here know how to pronounce that, I'd appreciate it. Anyway, he wrote a book called Ten Books. So, he wrote a book called Ten Books on Human Free Choice and Divine Grace, in which he stood with Pelagius from a thousand years earlier, arguing that original sin did not corrupt human nature. A year later, in 1543, a French theologian named Jacobin also known as John Calvin, wrote a rebuttal to Pidges' called The Bondage and Liberation of the Will, in which he applied the Augustinian doctrine of the sovereignty of God to salvation itself that became known as predestination, a biblical doctrine, but that's the definition of it. Calvin wrote numerous commentaries and wrote many pastoral and academic letters, which have been saved today in book form. The amount he wrote is unbelievable. He preached twice every Sunday. He preached the New Testament in the morning, and then he did the Psalms or the New Testament again, although not the same sermon like I would do, because I'm far lazier than Calvin. Uh, But he would preach a whole new sermon in the New Testament in the afternoon, and every morning he would preach from the Old Testament every second week. This guy was a machine, he was unreal. His most famous writing, however, is his Institutes of the Christian Religion, a book which is still widely read and regarded today. Calvin uh, went to be with the Lord in 1564. Following his death, a new theologian of note named Arminius came along and agreed with much of what Calvin had written, but he took exception to the extent of God's saving grace. Arminius proposed that God's grace extended to all people, and that due to this grace, all people had the free will to choose to follow Christ. This brings us to the Remonstrants. The Remonstrants were students of Arminius who, after Arminius had died, I often wonder why did they wait till Arminius had died, maybe just to do Arminius a favor, as he was probably getting old and didn't need the headaches. Uh, after Arminius had died, they protested against Calvin's teachings regarding predestination, election, and God's grace. They put their objections into five separate categories that have, uh, that, that, we know now, that we know now as the five points of Calvinism. Uh, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. Those are the five categories. Not that it matters much, but I do want to emphasize it was not John Calvin, and it was not Calvinists who came up with the five points. They didn't come up with that. The Remonstrants did, and they're the ones that labeled it as such. In 1618, the Reformed theologians in the Netherlands had had enough of the Remonstrants, and they called for a synod at the town of Dortrecht, known as the Synod of Dort, Uh, It was at the synod where the churches responded to the remonstrance objections and drafted a confessional document known as the Canons of Dort in which they affirmed the doctrines of grace or they affirmed the doctrines of Calvinism or the five points, if you wish. This issue has been settled in those churches that hold to the Reformed tradition. However, those outside of the Reformed tradition do not hold to these doctrines and they are still being debated to this day. Just in case you're wondering where we stand, we are Presbyterian. As Presbyterian, we are the United Kingdom's version of the Swiss Reformed. John Knox, the founder of the Presbyterian Church in Scotland, was a student of John Calvin in Geneva, Switzerland. Our confession which is the Westminster Confession of Faith from 1646, confesses all five points as being true, being biblical, and of course being accurate. Here ends the history lesson. If you, uh, if you will recall from the last time we were in John, we had a, a bit of a scene change, right? We went uh, from one feast, uh, the Feast of Booze, And we are now at the Feast of Dedication, or Hanukkah, if you prefer. The Pharisees once again corner Jesus in the temple and demand that he speak plainly, if you remember that, speak plainly, he says, as though he had not been speaking plainly before this, and answer the question, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Speak plainly. And what was Jesus' response? I told you. I told you, and you do not believe. Verses 25 through 27 have long been used as a proof text for the doctrine of limited atonement. One of the five points. So now you know why I gave you the history lesson. So let's look carefully at the passage. Verse 25. I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Jesus makes it very plain that he had told them. Further, not only did he use words to tell them, but he provided work after work, miracle after miracle, in front of everybody to show that what he was saying about himself was true. In his Father's name, to prove that what he was saying, right? here's what I'm saying, I know it's hard to believe, but here I'm going to do a bunch of miracles that you can't deny, and then show me who else can do these miracles that will, in fact, verify what I'm saying, right? And yet, what was amazing is what was the result. You've heard, you've heard me say this before. There are numerous people out there that would say, if God, I would have believed I'd believe there's a God if he would just show me. We've all heard that argument. Every single one of us. And yet we know that's not true. They wouldn't believe. How do we know that? Because Jesus did miracle after miracle right in front of them. Undeniable miracles. And what was the response? And you do not believe. Now, more importantly, why did they not believe? We covered this to some extent last time, but I want to make this point crystal clear. Jesus does not leave us hanging for long. He immediately tells us in verse 26, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. You're not my sheep. That's why you don't believe. In verses 1 to 18... Jesus makes it very clear that His sheep hear His voice. His sheep hear His voice. He makes it clear that He knows His sheep and that His sheep know Him. He makes it very clear that His sheep follow Him. Conversely, what we can gather from this statement then, that they... Why are they not his sheep? Can we not easily ascertain that those that are not his sheep do not hear his voice? Can we not reason that those that are not his sheep do not know him? And that in turn he does not know them? Can we understand that if his sheep follow him, then those that do not follow him are not his sheep? Seems kind of basic, doesn't it? They do not follow him because they do not know him. Jesus continues, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me, verse 27. He's already said this previously at the last feast. At the Feast of Booze, he said this exact thing, and here he is again at the, at the new feast, Hanukkah. He's saying it again. I fail to see how much more clearly Jesus could make this distinction. Jesus has a flock, a sheepfold, if you will. He has a people. There are those that belong to him, that know him, that follow him, and there are those that do not belong to him that do not know him that do not follow him folks we have two categories we have jesus sheep and we have the non-jesus sheep otherwise known biblically in the bible as the goats we have the sheep and we have the goats there's only two categories Now, what does Jesus say about the benefits of being one of his sheep? He says, I give them eternal life. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Verse 28. Jesus is the giver of eternal life. This is an extension or addition to all that Jesus has declared before. If you'll remember from verse 10, Jesus declared that he had come to give physical life to his sheep. And not only to give them physical life, but to give them physical life abundantly. What else had he said? He said he was the bread of life, he said that he was living water. That all who drank from him would never thirst again. He said he was the light of the world. Those that are his sheep have all these things. If you are a Christian, you have all these things. And you know you have all these things. And you're thankful for them. And not only do we have these things, but we have them abundantly. And most emphatically, if you are his sheep, you are part of his glorious flock. And being part of his glorious flock, he gives you eternal life. What does that mean? Jesus says further, eternal life means that you will never perish. You will never perish. The concept of perish or perishing is found throughout both Old and New Testaments. Uh, And the word takes on slightly different meanings, as I'm sure you can understand. Although they are all related in a sense, depending on the context. In this context, as it is used in contrast with eternal life, it can lead one to think that instead of living forever, forever, the one who is not a sheep will experience annihilation. If you think that, you would be wrong. Annihilation is not a biblical concept. Paul, writing to the persecuted church in Thessalonica, says in chapter 1, verse 9, they, speaking of the ones who do not know God, will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. I've heard R.C. Sproul say, he equates this with, Being in God's presence in heaven is to experience nothing but his grace and mercy every day. What? He wipes away every tear. Uh, It's hard to even fathom how wonderful and how good heaven's going to be. Why? Because you're going to experience nothing but the goodness of God in heaven. Whereas in eternal destruction, otherwise known as hell... Because there is no place where God cannot be, hell is a place where God will be, but you will experience nothing but the justice and wrath of God. You will experience nothing of His goodness. You will only experience His justice. As much as I'd like to expand on the categories of heaven and hell uh, today, the text has us studying elsewhere John takes us in a different direction. However, what I will say is that when you look at the blessings of Christ in this life and the promises of the life to come in the eternal presence of our glorious and merciful God, where else would you want to be? Where else? For those that have Christ as their shepherd, you have eternal life. This is our hope. This is the promise of the hope in Christ. This is the promise of Christ who rose from the dead as the first fruits of eternal life. Our graves cannot hold us because we're in Christ. The tomb could not hold Christ. Our graves will not hold us. Praise God. Hallelujah. Jesus goes on to say that no one will snatch them out of my hand. This is a clear illustration of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. If you are a Christian, one who is born from above, as Jesus described to Nicodemus in chapter 3, your name is written in the book of life as described in Revelation 20. We've seen from the start of this chapter that there are those that enter the sheepfold, there are those that enter the sheepfold who are not of good intention. We have... The thieves and the robbers from verses 1 and verse 8. As Christians who belong to the flock of Jesus, we have the rest and security Christ provides from those who would try to lead us astray. In verse 12, Jesus tells us how he is not like the hired hand who runs away when the wolves come to kill and to destroy the flock, he is our protector. We remain as part of the sheepfold, not because of how smart and wonderful we are, as the parable of the lost sheep shows us, but because we are in the hands of Almighty God. We are weak in faith. We are weak in faith, but He is strong. We are prone to wander away from our God to our own destruction. He is faithful. He is faithful and he brings us back, healing our wounds, drying our tears. The Apostle Paul has much to say about this. When we turn to Romans chapter 8, we read, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Listen carefully to this. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger, or sword. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? Paul covered all the bases, didn't he? Are you hounded by the troubles of this life, by the troubles of this world? Not to worry. Christ is with you. Nothing can snatch you out of his hand. Are you experiencing persecution? Not to worry. Christ is with you. Nothing can snatch you out of his hand. Get this one. Are you dead? No, just sleeping. Are you dead? Not to worry. Christ is with you. Nothing, including death, can snatch you out of his hand. Are you understanding what Paul's talking about here? Nothing, Paul says, nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Nothing. And this is not on your strength, but on his strength. This is not because of your faithfulness, but because of his faithfulness. Verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Jesus had just finished going through all the things he is able to do. First, they are his sheep. He knows them. He gives them eternal life. They are in his hands. This is all very personal. If you know how to read English structure, Jesus is the object. He is the one doing all these things. Then Jesus here in verse 29 turns it all around and says, the Father." has given the sheep to me. Why do they belong to Christ? Because the Father has given them to the Son. The Father has given them to the Son. This isn't the first time we've heard Jesus say this. Back in chapter 6, Jesus made it clear that he and the Father act in perfect cohesion. That Jesus says and does only that which the Father tells him to do. Chapter 6 and verse 37. All that the Father gives me, I will never cast out, Jesus says. The sheepfold is, in essence, in every real sense, the sheepfold is a gift from the Father to the Son. The Son lays down His life for His sheep, like a good shepherd does. He is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus does not look at the gift from the Father and start picking through them. Jesus is not a picky child who thanks his Father for his supper and then proceeds to pick out and set aside the broccoli. He's been given a gift. Yes, sinners. He's been given the gift of sinful people. And Jesus says... Thank you, I will die for them. No matter how rotten they are. By the way, I like broccoli. Thank goodness for that, though, right? Jesus gladly accepts all that the Father gives him. Then we have a troublesome little expression here by Jesus that if we don't understand it properly can lead us into some errant thinking about the nature of God. The Nicene Creed written to make clear the nature of Christ. Remember, there's nothing new under the sun. The church struggled with this, right? Says, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance, homoousios, as opposed to homoiousios. Homoousios, with the Father. God, ontologically, fancy word of saying, in his being, is equal with the Son and with the Holy Spirit. So what does Jesus mean when he uses the term greater than all? In what sense? In Christian theology, we understand that there are different roles, otherwise known as economies. In the Godhead. What are their roles in creation and salvation? It is the Father who sends the Son into the world for our redemption. The Father does not come. That's not the Father on the cross, that's the Son on the cross. The Spirit does not die on the cross. Jesus, the Son, dies on the cross. Jesus, the, second person, of the uh, uh, second person of the Trinity, acquires our salvation. The Spirit then applies that redemption to us by making us alive in Christ. Each has their role. The Holy Spirit causes our spirit to come alive and applies the redeeming power attained by Christ to our account, who was sent by the Son, or by the Father, sorry, the Son was sent by the Father. Each person of the Trinity plays a role, not independent of one another, not independent of one another, but in perfect harmony with one another. Put simply, the Father initiates, the Son acts via the power of the Holy Spirit. The Father initiates, the Son acts via the power of the Holy Spirit. Then Jesus says, no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Not only saints are we safe and secure in the hands of Christ, but in case that's not enough for you, you are doubly safe and secure in the Father's hands. When Jesus prays to the Father in the presence of his disciples in his high priestly prayer in chapter 17, we see Jesus formally handing the disciples off to the Father. He says in verse 12, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Jesus is handing them back to the Father for safekeeping while Jesus goes to the cross and then he goes to the tomb. How much more security do we need? We are in the Father's hands. I ask you, is there a safer place to be than in the hands of the Father? Unless you're a sinner in the hands of an angry God, but we're not going to preach on that today jesus goes on i and the father are one i and the father are one verse 30 this is not the first time that jesus has alluded to the unity of the father and himself and it wasn't received well the first time jesus time and again makes crystal clear that he and the father are in lockstep with one another in all things in all things There are many religious organizations such as the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses that dispute the meaning of this text and others like it to mean only that there is functional oneness. This is the argument. John is talking about the functional oneness between Christ and the Father. And they deny that it means anything more than that. They will try to take you to John 17, which I just quoted, to make their point. But you must be of more sound mind than to be led astray by such illogical thinking. John 17 is in the greater context of what came before it. Does that make sense? John 17 must be understood by what has come before it. Why don't we start with this, John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at whose side? The Father's side. He has made him known. John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am, of course, being the name of God, which is why they picked up stones to kill him. I once had a Jehovah's Witness, who drove all the way out to Benchlands to, to see me, tell me that in order to understand John 1.1, 1, 1, get this, in order to understand John 1.1, 1, 1, I had to read John 17. This is an absurd claim, as one of you understands. It's absurd. The very first sentence of the book of John, I can't know unless I turn 17 chapters ahead and read the high priestly prayer. How does that make any sense? It does not, in case you're wondering. As I said earlier, there is the, ontolo- uh, there's the ontology of the Godhead, meaning all persons of the Trinity are equal in being. And then there's the Economy of the Godhead, meaning with the Father, through the Son, via the power of the Holy Spirit. In the economy of the Godhead, the Father is greater. In the economy of the Godhead, Jesus is functionally subordinate to the will of the Father. No one argues this. No Christian argues this. But in their being, in their ontology... They are equal. So, in conclusion, I started off today with a bit of a history lesson. The title of today's sermon is For Whom Did Christ Die? The extent of the atonement of Christ has been one that has bantered around Christians, Christian circles for hundreds, if not well over a thousand years. The perspectives are pretty straightforward. They have been given theological titles in order to make things easier, and we will will use the same, okay? So let's get the straw man argument out of the way first. We want to be honest with all sides, right? Let's get the straw man out of the way first. All Christians, all Christians, regardless of stripe, will agree that Christ's death on the cross is sufficient to cover The sins of the whole world. Nobody argues that. Nobody. Christ's atoning worth is not the issue. It's not the issue. We all say Christ is worth more than all of creation. We all agree to that. Christ is more than enough to cover the sins of the entire planet. All right? No one argues this. Anyone who tries to tell you that we argue this, they're wrong. The Arminian Perspective. See, these are titles. And I want to make something crystal clear. It was brought to my attention, and this is an argument that I've heard more than once and has been used against you out there. You guys follow a man named Calvin. I follow Jesus. What an absolutely absurd, ridiculous statement. It's just, I don't even have words for how illogical that is. I don't care if you're Jacob Arminius or John Calvin. Both are doing their best to follow the God of the Bible. They both are. They're both using theology to understand their positions. We don't turn around and look at Arminians and go, you guys follow Jacob Arminius rather than Jesus. Surely we're not that arrogant. We're not that silly. And don't put up with those that like to turn the tables on you. The Arminian perspective when answering the question, for whom did did Christ die, would be that he died for everyone, listen carefully, he died for everyone, Potentially. Jacob Arminius and his followers would look at the uh, question of for whom did Christ die and say that he died for everyone potentially. Christ's sacrifice by the grace of God is available to all people universally. That's important. Universally meaning everyone who's ever been born, no matter where they live, no matter what their circumstance, they the the grace of God, the saving grace of God is available to all people universally and is effectual only to those who believe and repent. Okay? That's the Arminian perspective. I think I have that right. I'm I'm being forthcoming. Okay? The Calvinist perspective, when answering the question, for whom did Christ die, would say that Christ died effectively as opposed to potentially. There's the first difference. He died effectively for his sheep. The benefits of the atonement of Christ, dying on the cross, are for the elect only. Christ died not for everyone, but only for those whom are his. Now, why does this matter? I'm sure some of you are wondering. Well, let me explain. I'm going to give you the gospel according to the gospel story. I'll put it that way. The gospel story according to Arminius terms, and I'm going to give it to you in the the doctrines of grace or Calvinistic terms, okay? Arminians would say the following. Humanity is depraved and fallen, but still has a spark of spiritual life in him. Mankind has the ability to choose the good. He has the ability to choose to follow God or to not follow God. God loves all people equally. God loves all people equally. God allows people, using their free will, to choose freely to follow Him or to not follow Him. He has not elected anyone of his own volition. He has not elected anyone according to his own volition, but has elected upon a condition of faith and repentance which is wrought by the believer, the believer's free will. Christ died for all people everywhere, everywhere. And, more importantly, all have the ability to choose to follow him. The grace of God can be resisted. The grace of God can be rebuffed. Because of all things, because of all of these things, humanity, in their free will, can and often do fall from saving grace can and often do fall from saving grace, meaning that they can leave the faith. So they, they had saving faith, and then using their free will, they chose to leave, to unfollow, if you will, like, like a Facebook button. I follow Jesus. Well, that's annoying. I unfollow Jesus, right? They can be lost even after having saving faith. Okay? That's that's the story of Arminian theology. Calvinists would say the following. Humanity is not only depraved and fallen, but we are spiritually dead. And by dead, I mean dead-dead at the bottom of the ocean dead. Okay? Fallen man cannot choose to do good, for even our good works are but filthy rags before the face of God. We cannot choose to follow God of our own volition, for we do not have the ability to do so. But God... But God in his grace and mercy, have chosen some unto salvation. God has a people. God has a flock whom are his. By the way, there's nothing special about these people. In fact, the Bible makes it perfectly clear that God's election is almost always of the lowly almost always of the lowly. He chooses that which is weak to shame the strong. These are the sorts of things God does. He loves, he loves to pick the underdog. God does not choose according to your good works and charming personalities. His choice is unconditional, meaning that you and I have nothing to do with it other than bring your sin. Christ died for his sheep. When he declared on the cross, it is finished, we must ask ourselves, what was finished? What was accomplished? Did Jesus definitively accomplish anything on the cross, or did he only potentially make salvation possible? Jesus died on the cross for his sheep. He most definitely and definitively died for that which was his. He died for that which was given to him by the Father. God's saving grace is irresistible. Is irresistible for his sheep. His sheep hear his voice and they follow. It's interesting that in the Bible, nowhere does it say, Jesus' sheep hears his voice, but they don't follow. You won't find that. Why? Because they can do no other. They belong to him, and they follow him. And they will never perish. They will never perish. Why? Because their salvation does not depend upon their strength, but their salvation depends upon the strength of God himself. God has indeed called all mankind to repentance and faith in his son Jesus Christ. Praise God, hallelujah, that's a fact. God has called all mankind to repentance and faith in his son Jesus Christ. He has graciously allowed His people, meaning you and I in His church, to participate in that calling. We go and share the gospel not because we feel at all confident in our abilities to convince the non-believer that we're right, but because God has a people. God has a people and He has given us the mandate to go and find them. We are to preach Christ in Him crucified to every creature in the hopes that His sheep will hear His voice and they will come. And that those that come will have abundant life here and now and in the life to come. All praise be to God. And God's people said, Amen. Would you pray? Heavenly Father, You say hard things. We're going to see next week, verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. It is the natural man who hates the gospel. It is the natural man who cannot wrap his head around the person and work of Jesus Christ and how the person and work of Jesus Christ. That salvation that is offered freely. Is so objectionable to so many. Lord if we are to understand ourselves correctly that it was once objectionable to almost everyone in this room. We all needed to have our eyes opened. We all needed To have our hearts circumcised. That we would be given a heart of flesh in place of our heart of stone. Which naturally hated you and hated your son and hated your message and hated your rules and hated your morals and hated your laws. To come to the point now where we can say we love Jesus. We love the Father. And through the power of the Holy Spirit we have the capabilities of being obedient to your law and that in turn we can be a light to a dark place we can be a light on a hill that we have the courage of our convictions to preach the gospel to all creatures of you as, as you have commanded of us and what a great privilege that is lord god i thank you for the people here i thank you for your word and lord i pray that you would give us Soft hearts that we would be obedient to your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.